0: Well, we are continuing uh, our look here at uh, the book of Acts, a journey uh, through Acts. We finished up with uh, Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. Then they went to Jerusalem, as we looked at last week, for a, uh, a discussion about what the early church leaders and the apostles about doctrinal matters, and that was Acts 15. And now uh, they are on the road again as we come to the end of chapter 15 and on to uh, chapter 16. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw the news this week, but it was interesting. Uh, Archaeologists actually found over in the Holy Land an actual ancient photograph of the Apostle Paul. It was really amazing. And uh, so now we know we we can put a name with the face. Uh, But they are on the road again. And uh, I want to read as kind of a setup or lead up, if you will, to chapter 16, because we're going to blow through chapter 16 just section by section uh, today. Uh, just draw some principles from it. But to kind of put it in context, just uh, listen as I pick it up at the end of chapter 15 in verse 30. So remember they had met in Jerusalem. They had what we call the Jerusalem Council. They uh, issued the Jerusalem Decree, which they then sent back to the churches. And we pick it up in verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. So this is Paul and Barnabas returning from Jerusalem back to Antioch in Syria where they had been sent out for their first missionary church, kind of their home church. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. This is that Jerusalem council. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. Sent back to Jerusalem. But notice... However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now pick it up in verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren. Notice the the converts that they had seen on their first missionary journey as they preached the gospel and these people believed in Christ and became saved are now brethren. Let us go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Remember John Mark had been with Paul and uh, Barnabas on their first journey. Then he abandoned them. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Uh, just interesting that, you know, human nature is human nature, and even in the early days of the church, no less than Paul and Barnabas themselves had parting of the ways sometimes when conflicts arise. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Remember, Cyprus was Barnabas's home island. Uh, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul's... Second journey, then, is not Paul and Barnabas, but Paul and Silas, and that's kind of uh, the background uh, to what we're going to be looking at this morning in uh, chapter 16. So as uh, Paul embarks on this next missionary journey, we now have enough information as we kind of watch him again and again uh, to sort of see his predictable approach and his pattern at each stop, and it really gives us a road map for evangelism. So what is evangelism? Let's uh, start there. We see this verb uh, come up uh, quite often. It's the word euangelizo, which we transliterate evangelism. It's used 55 times in the New Testament, and 25 of those are by Luke. So 15 times in Acts, 10 times in Luke. In uh, Acts 15, which we looked at last week, we see an example in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remain in Antioch, teaching and preaching. Which we just read that passage. Preaching, euangelizo. Uh, we see it in chapter 16, which we're going to be looking at this morning. The Lord had called us there to preach the gospel. That whole phrase, preach the gospel, in English is one word, euangelizo, in uh, Greek. So it means to verbally proclaim the gospel. That's what evangelism is. Uh, these days you as we talked about a couple of weeks ago you hear a lot of people talking about evangelism and trying to define evangelism but it seems it's lost its core essence and evangelism has started to include things like social the social gospel helping people with you know their physical needs and, and so forth and all of that's sort of been imported and infused into the gospel so that evangelism today has really lost uh, it's real essence, which is to verbally proclaim uh, the gospel. So I think as we go through this passage this morning, I want you to to kind of see the process that Paul engaged in. Remember this is historical narrative so it's just sort of telling us a story under the inspiration of the Spirit. Luke is recording the progress of the early church as it moved westward. Um, so we can draw some principles from here, but they have to be sort of supported by clear doctrinal teaching elsewhere, and indeed they certainly are. So the first I think step in the roadmap for evangelism is to study the culture. And we see uh, this alluded to in the first five verses of uh, chapter 16. We read, then he came to Derby and Lystra remember he had visited there twice on his first journey, uh, and a certain disciple was there named Timothy. This is one of those walk-ons that we see Luke Give us in the early days of the church where a uh, person is mentioned and then they become a central figure in in the rest of his account. Uh, A certain man, a certain disciple named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek." And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. So another one of uh, Luke's progress reports in the book of Acts, as we see the result of this uh, preaching. So what's going on here? I mean, here, uh, Paul had just met with the apostles and the church leaders in Jerusalem. There, he, by this time, he's already written his first letter, Galatians, which was written all about uh, the gospel and the purity and clarity of the gospel, that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You, it's simply by grace through faith. You don't have to keep the Jewish law to be saved. And then we see in the biblical account, <coughs> God telling us that right out of the chute, the next thing he does is he goes and has somebody circumcised. Why? Why would Paul uh, do that? Well, the text sort of uh, tells us why, but the key here is we've got to exegete the culture before we can exegete the biblical text. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about in this upcoming series starting this Wednesday on how to share the gospel is how to be sensitive to the audience. You know, uh, it's a big world out there, and the gospel doesn't change. The gospel is simple. Doesn't matter what language you say it in or write it in, it's the same. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. But nevertheless, the way you communicate that and connect with people, as we see again and again in the book of Acts in the early church, is going to differ depending on who you're talking to. Again, the gospel doesn't change. The saving message is the same. But if you're talking to someone in Russia or China or inner city Los Angeles or different cultures, You need to understand that culture so as not to create any stumbling blocks or make any faux pas or things like that that could impede the work of the Spirit as He's, you know, convicting people of their need for a Savior. So uh, at Lystra, this young believer named Timothy uh, had really impressed Paul. It's likely that Timothy had believed the gospel and been saved during Paul's first visit to that area back in chapters 13 and 14. But mixed marriages between Jews and Gentiles were more common outside of the Jerusalem region than within it. And here, that's the case here. Timothy's mother Eunice and grandmother Lois that we read about in Paul's second letter to Timothy much later uh, were both sincere Jews and had instructed Timothy in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Timothy had gotten saved. He He finds favor in the eyes of Paul. Uh, uh, He's endeared to Paul. Paul, uh, Timothy becomes Paul's son in the faith. Uh, In fact, he writes two letters to him inspired by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And so this young Timothy now sort of takes the place that John Mark had occupied on their first journey uh, before he abandoned them. So Timothy became one of Paul's closest friends and most faithful uh, fellow workers for the gospel. So as we read in verse 3, Paul wanted to have him go on with him, but he took him and and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. So we have an insight into why Paul did this. It wasn't necessary for his eternal salvation. Timothy was already born again. He didn't need to be circumcised to get into heaven. But Paul was sensitive to the culture. He knew it was necessary for effective evangelistic ministry to not create A stumbling block. Unbelieving Jews would not have given Paul a hearing if he had traveled with an uncircumcised Gentile, even though, as we saw, Timothy was half Jewish. See, Paul knew the culture. Paul knew the culture, and so should we. This is an important general principle that Paul later talks about uh, several different times, but we could look at, for example, in 1 Corinthians, in his letter to 1 Corinthians. he, He talks about how, his love for others is going to place limits on the things that he can do. You know, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, in the context here are talking about meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, you know, Some strict legalists thought, well, if it's been used on the altar, you don't want to eat it. And then some more pragmatists that were believers in the church age and understood the freedom and understood kind of the picture that we see of Peter and the sheet and all that, they said, no, why would you want to waste that good food? Let's throw that thing on the grill, right? And so, but Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He goes on in chapter 9, he says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. That I might win the more. Now this is part of a broader passage in 1 Corinthians 9 that's often uh, cited and taken completely out of context. What is Paul really saying here? He goes on to say, To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. What does Paul mean by all things? People have, boy, they've taken this verse and just run with it to justify all kinds of bizarre behavior and activities and approaches uh, to ministry as if uh, we have to be just like the world in order to share the gospel with the world. But the key to understanding this verse is this little Greek word translated all. All. What does Paul mean by all things and all men? The English word all has often led people to think that Paul was suggesting there are no boundaries. Anything goes. Whatever it takes. I'll do anything and everything. It's uh, the Greek word pas. uh, It's it's a very common word in Greek. It's an adjective. Uh, It's used 1,200 plus times. So like a lot of adjectives in English, it's very common in Greek. Uh, And it has a variety of meanings in Greek. It can mean different things in different contexts, but context always determines the meaning. And in this context, it doesn't mean all. It means any. It means any. So when we say, I'll do anything to help you, we do not mean I'll do everything. That's because there are some things we won't do, right? Man, whatever you need, I'll do anything okay, well, uh, I need you to go rob that bank for me because I need a lot of money. Well, we, we're not going to do that, right? See, anything doesn't mean everything. Anything means I'm going to do whatever I can to help you within certain boundaries, within certain non-negotiables. When Paul says, I became all things to all men, what he is saying here is, I will do Anything within reason for the gospel. Paul would never compromise truth or morality or principle for the sake of evangelism. He wouldn't do everything, but he would do anything. Anything he could within biblical guidelines to share the gospel with the lost. And the same is true for us. There are certain boundaries. The very next verse after Paul says, I have become all things to all men, which again doesn't mean you... You just transform yourself into the world so that, you know, people will like you, and then you might be able to tell the gospel, tell them the gospel. The very next verse, Paul says, this I do for the gospel's sake. For the gospel's sake. So when Paul had Timothy circumcised, it was because it was in the best interest of the gospel enterprise, and it didn't compromise biblical truth. It wasn't wrong to be circumcised in the church. It was just wrong if you think circumcision is required to get into heaven. That's wrong. And Paul certainly didn't teach that in the context he just delivered to them the letter that we read about in chapter 15 where it made plain that you don't have to be circumcised. So nobody would have confused or misunderstood what Paul was doing as, as somehow capitulating to the legalist. He's just saying, I, I know my audience. I know my culture. And I want to have an honest, transparent discussion with them about the Lord Jesus and how they can only be saved by placing their faith in Him. And if I've got a person with me who is an uncircumcised Jew or half-Jew, that could cause a, a stumbling block for them. That's going to be the elephant in the room, and they're going to want to deal with that issue and get my explanation and help me you know, explain what's, what's going on before I can even begin to talk about the Lord. So Paul did the logical thing we have to study the culture and that's exactly what paul did with timothy Uh, he wasn't compromising on grace he wasn't (coughs) elevating the law but he simply was preparing the way for evangelism Well, what else do we learn if we look at the next little section the roadmap for evangelism involves sensing the call Now, this is really where it gets kind of exciting in 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 the narrative of the early church But we have to remember evangelism is, by definition, a work of the Spirit, right? We don't save anybody. We can't argue anyone into the faith. It's not about our gimmicks or techniques and those types of things. And that's why when we're going through this Good News Made Plain series starting this Wednesday, it's not giving you gimmicks or tricks. It's just helping you casually and confidently talk about the message in ways that people in different settings might understand it, uh, that it might relate to it. It's helping you more exegete the culture than it is the gospel. The gospel is pretty simple. It's so simple a child can understand it. We don't need to spend eight weeks talking about the gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Done. That's the gospel. But we do need to think about, especially in this melting pot culture that we have today, uh, how we can find an opening for the gospel. And here the Spirit of God opens the door for the gospel in Macedonia. And uh, you know it's not up to us. It's up to us to sense the Spirit's call. Listen to what we read in verse 6. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now what this tells me, and this is important to understand, just this one simple statement by Luke, again, under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that sometimes the Spirit prompts us to remain quiet. Have you ever thought about that? And we think so much about evangelism and sharing the gospel, about you know opportunities that we missed where maybe the Spirit is saying, hey, you should say something, or you should give them a track, or you should do this. Well, here we have the biblical record that sometimes the Spirit of God says, no, not right now, not right now. And then he goes on, After they had come to My, to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Once again. See, this is because God has a plan. And we, we are so busy doing life and even doing uh, church that sometimes our in our busyness, we forget to check in with the Holy Spirit from time to time and see where He's leading us to go or what He's leading us to do. But God's plan is perfect, his timing is always perfect, and he knows what he's doing. So a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. In other words, God's saying, This is where I want you to speak. This is when I want you to speak. This is to whom I want you to speak. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, if you're not careful, you'll miss something pretty significant in the words here. Remember, in our study of how to study the Bible, we talked about the importance of observation. But notice Luke, the narrator here, has joined the party. He's joined the, the group on this journey at this point because he's using the first person plural. After he had seen the vision, immediately we, me and Paul and Silas, sought to go to Macedonia so we could preach the gospel with them. So this is a real pivotal turning point, as I'm going to show you on a map in just a moment, in the early days of the church and in the uh, flow of the gospel and the spreading of the gospel. Uh, Richard Longenecker put it this way, authentic turning points in history are few, but surely among them that of the Macedonian vision ranks high. Because of Paul's obedience at this point, the gospel went westward. And ultimately, Europe and the Western world were evangelized. Christian response to the call of God is never a trivial thing. Indeed, as in this instance, great issues and untold blessings may depend on it. And I threw that quote in there because it really struck me how often I dismiss the significance of the voice of the Spirit in our lives and the call of the Lord. You know, if God is calling you to do something, and I don't mean mystically or just because you got goosebumps or, or whatever. I mean, if you feel the Spirit of God directing you to do something, you better heed that call. Because it's about more than you. God's doing something. And it remains to be seen what He's doing. So here is their first missionary journey. We, we had this map up uh, several times. You can see in the uh, top right there, it started in Syria at uh, Antioch. And then, uh, you know, they went to Cyprus first, the arrows down at the bottom, and then up into the region of southern Galatia, those areas of Iconium and Lystra and Derby and so forth. And then they came back to Antioch. Well, then they went to Jerusalem, as we said, uh, had the meeting with the apostles, received the instruction about the relationship between circumcision and salvation. And then they came back to Antioch, and now they are you know, embarking from that same home port. But instead of going straight to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas went with John Mark, the dotted uh, arrows there, Paul and Silas and Luke, when he joined them, ended up going up through Syria and across uh, that way. And then you can see when they get to Troas, that's where they get the Macedonian call, as we term it. And they end up going uh, across the sea there and over into what is modern-day Greece, and uh, the region of Macedonia. And so truly, you know, if you, th- if you look at their first journey, everything was kind of consolidated not too far, not too very far from Jerusalem and, and, and Israel. But when the Spirit of God called Paul to go further west, then it, it reached all of those uh, regions uh, around there. So we've got to sense the call. We've got to sense the call. The third thing that we see in the next uh, five verses is to seek out a conversation, to seek out a conversation. Uh, So they get to that region, and we read in verse 11, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. Uh, So they're in Philippi, and we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day... We went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Boy, a lot of observations we can take away from this uh, passage. So they come to Philippi in modern-day Greece, and normally Paul would go into the synagogue to preach on the Sabbath. But evidently there was no synagogue in this region. And that suggests that there were probably fewer Jews there uh, than in other places the further they got away from Israel. It only took ten Jews uh, to establish a synagogue. And so in the absence of a synagogue, worshipers would meet beside uh, the river. It was about a mile and a half away from town there in Philippi. And they would do what Jews normally did in the synagogue together. Josephus, that first century historian tells us it was customary for Jews and Gentiles God-fearers to meet together in the open air by a river or the sea when there was no synagogue available. And that's exactly what was going on here in Philippi. It's also interesting that evidently no men were there the day Paul found the place. He said he sat down and spoke to the women who met there. No indication that he asked the men to leave. <laughs> it's just there weren't any men at this prayer meeting. And someone has pointed out after 2,000 years... A lot of things still haven't changed. (laughs) Most prayer meetings today are made up of God-fearing women, I'm sad to say. I mean, I'm happy to say for the women, but sad to say for us men. Uh, So Paul preached the gospel to those women that were there. So the question then is, do you seek out opportunities to share the gospel? Um, Paul knew there was a gathering of people down by the river, Jews, that were worshiping God-fearers. They weren't believers. They hadn't heard about Christ or trusted in Christ yet. So he sought him out. He went down there. He intentionally went to the river. You know, there's a difference between being nice and kind and helpful and friendly and doing things for people and serving others, and evangelizing. What do we say the term means? Evangelizo to verbally articulate the gospel. You know, sometimes people will say, and I've even said this, you know, in my own heart, as I begin a new day, I'll say, well, I, I want, I want to let others see Jesus in me today, all day long. Well, that's great, and, and I love that. But we, we, we should have that attitude, but we've got to go beyond that. People don't get the gospel by osmosis. So remember, helping others and serving others, doing the, that's pre-evangelism. That's establishing relationships. That's just being kind and loving, which is part of the Spirit's nature, You know, the fruit of the Spirit. But if we're not sharing the gospel, then we're not evangelizing because that's what the word means. We've got to seek out a conversation. The text goes on to say, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. Oh, look at that. You seek out a conversation, God begins to do a work. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now, we've talked a lot in our series on Calvinism about whether or not a person has the capacity to believe the gospel. They absolutely do. That's the testimony of scripture. This isn't uh, Luke telling us that somehow God forced her to believe the gospel. No, the Spirit of God just did a work on her heart to prepare her heart in that moment, in that instance, in that way, to be come under conviction and hear the, to hear the gospel. And so she believed. Uh, it's the Spirit's work. We're just the instruments. We're just the conduit. The Spirit of God does, does the work. So we study the culture, we sense the call, we seek out a conversation. You see where this is going in the roadmap uh, for evangelism? But sometimes this roadmap calls for us to stand firm in conflict. In this next section of Acts, we're going to see kind of the other side of the principle, all things to all men, uh, that we talked about a moment ago. Evangelism is not an end justifies the means enterprise. In other words, how people respond or how much opposition there may be or what struggles you might come across in the process, none of that should dictate our willingness to share the gospel with others. We don't go where it's easy, we go where God tells us to go. And uh, so it it goes on to say, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination, the word divination is uh, literally the idea of fortune telling, someone who could predict the future. Uh, in fact, the New International Version actually translates it paraphrastically. She had a spirit by which she predicted the future, which is what that word divination actually means. It's actually the Greek word uh, python. Uh, it refers to a serpent or dragon in Greek mythology that kept guard at Delphi. The uh, land was uh, eventually slain by Apollo, and and, uh, and and one of the most important of the Olympian deities in classical Greek and Roman religion was this, uh, this uh, Apollo was the son of Zeus. So by the latter half of the first century this word python had actually been in the literature applied to ventriloquists because the idea was that a demonic spirit was speaking from within them and, and so that's why they called them ventriloquists they were pythons. Uh, pagan generals would often consult these pythons these fortune tellers, these ones who could predict the future before they would go into battle. Tell us how we're going to do. What, what should we do? How, how are we going to fare in this battle? So here this slave girl who has this spirit of divination's ability to tell the future. And she brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. So why didn't Paul just say, good for you. You guys are savvy businessmen. Great job using demonic activity to make money. Isn't, it supposed to be, isn't he supposed to be all things to all men? Right? Why didn't he just affirm them? He doesn't want to offend them, they might not believe the gospel, right? So why doesn't he just commend them for what they're doing? You're great businessmen using this demonic spirit to to kind of plan your business plan. Isn't he supposed to be all use all means, right? I'm being sarcastic, obviously, because no, it was wrong. And so Paul took a stand. He stood firm. This girl follows Paul and and us, Luke tells us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Sometimes the right words can still be said at the wrong time and be a distraction and be annoying. Uh, even though what she was saying was right, it was a distraction to Paul. And this is just one more example of the devil's opposition to the gospel. You know, He, he, angel, he masquerades as an angel of light. And you can just see him up there laughing as he's actually using accurate words to create a a, a distraction and a scene. So she did this for many days, and Paul, understandably, was greatly annoyed. And he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that hour. Well, that didn't make these masters very happy. Uh, When their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. He stood firm. But the devil doesn't give up easily. Uh, They brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. So the gospel, of course, is good news, but a lot of people won't have it. They won't receive it. And they don't perceive it as good news. So when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to keep them securely. We all know the story of the Paul and the Philippian jailer. jailer. Uh, so sharing the gospel often comes at a great cost. But we've got to stand firm uh, no matter what. Uh, remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders. We looked at this verse last week. He said, None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to to the gospel. This is three years later after what we're reading about in Acts 16. It's on his third missionary journey. And again, he's talking to these Ephesian elders. For Paul and Silas, the gospel is what it was all about. So even in the midst of persecution, Paul and Silas did not lose their focus. They stood firm and then they stayed the course. They stayed the course. And that's the final step in the process. Of course, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns uh, to God. They're in prison. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can pretty much guess that if I had been thrown in prison after being beaten, I probably would not be praying and singing hymns to God to my shame. I'd be asking, why God? Why God? Don't you know I was doing what you told me to do? I'm out sharing the gospel. I'm proclaiming the good news. I'm being a faithful servant. And this is what I get? You know, kind of like Jonah or somebody, right? But they were singing and praising God. The prisoners were listening to them, continuing to evangelize. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose. God is always at work, even when it seems like He's not. So the jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now clearly Paul and Silas had been sharing the gospel with the jailer. We know they'd been you know, sharing, uh, singing praises and praying. We know that the jailers had been listening to them, verse 25 tells us. So, you know, they have been talking about the Lord this whole time. And I picture Paul and Silas tag in the jailers and anyone else who would listen between songs of praise. Uh, if you'd been in an earthquake, your thoughts might turn to eternity too. Here's this earthquake, the jailer's concerned, scared, scared out of his mind. And he said... Hey, what can I do to be saved? Now again, in full transparency, if it had been me, I probably would have said, fend for yourself, buddy. I'm, I'm going to run for cover. You, know? you think I'm going to take time right now as the walls are crumbling around me to share with you how you can be saved? But that's exactly what Paul and, uh, Paul and Silas did. So they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. Simple statement of the gospel, believe, nothing else. Not surrender, not commit, not promise, not pledge, not forsake all your sins, not turn your life around, not make Jesus Lord, not put Him on the throne of your life. Believe the gospel 160 times. That's what the New Testament says we have to do to be saved. And so uh, then we pick up the story. They uh, went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. In other words, they have a job to do. They have a calling to fulfill. They have a burden to evangelize. So let's get going. We have more work to do. No time to stop and reflect on all that just happened. You know, these days something like that happens and we'd spend weeks memorializing it and talking about it and writing books about it. Paul and Barnabas said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we got beaten. We got put in prison. God rescued us from prison. The jailer got saved because we shared the gospel with him and now we're off. See you later. That was what it was all about for them, staying the course, staying the course. So we study the culture. You've got to exegete the culture before you can exegete the text and, uh, and begin to share the gospel. Then we sense the call, being sensitive to the Spirit's leadership. We seek out conversations with others. We stand firm even when there's conflict, and we stay the course. So my takeaway is simply a question for us to consider this week. Where are you on this roadmap? You know, when we talk about studying the culture next week in Acts chapter 17, I'm going to be talking about the biblical doctrine of separation. And I think there's a fine line between studying the culture and being able to create an opening for the gospel with the culture and compromising, as we talked about with 1 Corinthians 9. So. So, are, are you studying the culture? Are you sensing the call? Maybe that's where you are. Maybe the Spirit of God's calling you to do something, but you haven't responded yet. Are you seeking out a conversation? The gospel has to be shared verbally. That requires another person in the conversation. Maybe you're doing that, but you're facing conflict. Are you standing firm? Are you staying the course? So, where are you on this roadmap? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for... Uh, just the the exciting nature of this journey through Acts as we see what the early church dealt with and experienced and uh, as we witness your hand of blessing and protection in their lives. Lord, I pray as we review the history of the early church that it would remind us uh, that we're still part of that same church, that we share a common bond with Paul and Silas in the early church and we need to be continuing that ministry that we're not the church unless we're continuing this ministry of evangelism. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice that uh, in talking about sharing the gospel has perhaps heard the gospel and never before believed it, I pray that today the Spirit of God would convict them of their need for a Savior and in simple childlike faith they would trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again for their sins. And I pray all this in His precious name. Amen.